welcome to our new program called The New Resilient You. My name is Susie Botros and it's my privilege to journey with you across the next five sessions so that together we can develop our resilience and become stronger, more resilient, more decisive and less emotional when life throws curveballs at us. I'm sure you'd agree that the only predictable thing in life is that life is unpredictable. Outside of life and death, everything that happens in between can take us by surprise. We all have a story to tell, right? In fact, we all have stories to tell, hundreds and thousands of stories about our experiences with life being unpredictable. I have a story too. And as they say, our stories shape us. My story involves uh, being 15 years old when my mum was diagnosed with breast cancer. My sister, who's eight years younger than me, was really young. And then there was my dad. Life took us by complete surprise. So mum was diagnosed with breast cancer. Her journey was really, really excruciating. It was back in, we're talking 27 years ago, where uh, the whole cancer front and findings and research were nothing like they are today. And so within her first diagnosis, she was in for surgery for a double mastectomy within a couple of days. She was in remission for um, a, a year or so from recollection, but then soon after she then developed cancer in her bones as well. And it was a downhill spiral from there. I remember some really, really difficult moments as we went through that experience. In fact, I remember coming home from school one day and there was an ambulance up our driveway with the sirens on. I had no idea what was going on, but of course I assumed the worst and I thought that my mum had died while I was at school and I had no idea. And I literally, all these years later, I remember standing there with the keys in my hand and fumbling and shaking and I could hardly get the key into the lock. Three years from the first diagnosis, my mum passed away and she was only 53 years old at the time. Eight years later, fast forward, with a whole stack of things, of course, happening in between, but eight years later, then my dad was diagnosed with a serious illness that took his life also within nine months. Um, in fact, at his funeral, I was eight months pregnant with our first child. And so, you know what? They were challenging years. They were grief-filled years. But just like your story has turned you into who you are today, my story has done the same for me. And over the years, I've developed a real um, intuition, I guess, and a real uh, insight into how I handle life's challenges and the things that have worked for me and the things that haven't. And I've also developed a real passion to equip people with the ability to do life well and rise above life's challenges. And so I've spent a significant number of years researching, learning about and training and helping individuals and organisations build their resilience muscle and get better at handling life's challenges. And so I want to share my experiences, my thoughts with you so that together we can grow and develop in this space. You know what, what I'm about to share with you over the next five sessions is going to cover everything 
on the Richter scale from one all the way through to the highest it goes. I'm going to leave you with five key tools that will help you handle anything that challenges your resilience and messes with you. Whether it is death and grief, whether it is illness, whether it is kids that have gone off the scale, whether it is financial pressures, whether it is relational challenges or whether it's just feeling really, really low and lousy on, an, on a particular day for no apparent reason, whether it's that, you know, the meal that you've spent ages cooking that's just tasting awful, whether it's just, you know, peak hour traffic, whatever it is, the tools that I'm going to uh, address and unpack over the next five sessions are applicable across the board. So let's start at the start. What actually is emotional resilience? And so you'll see, a simple definition, emotional resilience is the ability to bounce back from life's challenges and avoid becoming a victim to your emotions and circumstances. Now, I just want to let you know that whether you are an optimist, whether you are a pessimist, whether you are a realist, whether you would describe yourself or others would describe you as a glass half full empty or a glass half empty person, whatever it is, you have the ability to develop your resilience because resilience is like a muscle. It's like we all have the ability to develop, to develop our fitness in the same way we all have the ability to develop our resilience. And so stay with me. This is for you regardless of how you see yourself and regardless of how you've handled life's challenges to date. And so we all know that resilience comes into play in every area of our life. I love this quote from Peter Scazzaro from the book Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And he says, emotional health and spiritual health are inseparable. It is not possible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. I love that because it is so true. But whilst that's a great quote, what do we do with that? What do we do with that? We know the scripture backs that. We know the scripture tells us all sorts of things about being strong and resilient. We probably all also know the famous verse in Philippians 4, 6 that says, be anxious for nothing. And it's like, what? nothing. How do I be anxious for nothing? Like, do you know my story? Do you know what's going on with me? Do you know about my husband? Do you know about my wife? Do you know about my kids? Do you? But then we think, hang on a moment. It was Paul who wrote this piece of scripture. And you know what? He wrote it while he was in prison. And so maybe it is possible that regardless of what is going on, that it is possible to be anxious for nothing. But how? Before we jump into um, some meaty stuff, I just want to uh, unpack with you what it looks like to be Jesus-like because ultimately that's your goal and that's my goal. That's the whole point of Christianity, to be more like Jesus. And so you'll see on your screen that I've popped up there what we call the discipleship cross. It's four areas that allow us to be more and more like Jesus because these are the areas where Jesus was perfect. And so he is our example in the way that he did relationship with God. He's also our example in the way that he did inner life, how he did his life behind closed doors. He's also our example in relation to how uh, he dealt and, and, and relationally uh, engaged with the believers 
And he's also our example for how to be influential in your surroundings, in your world with those who don't yet know Jesus. And so with these four areas in mind, I want to just draw your attention to what happens if you and I are not emotionally resilient. So when we're not emotionally resilient, when we're down in a heap, when we're down and out, when we can't see past our toes, you and I can't actually relate with God in the way that we should and in the way that he's created relationship with him. You see, we can't believe his promises. We can't believe that he's for us and not against us if we're down and out. In the same way, when it comes to our inner life and our secret life, you and I can't actually get up and brave the pressures of life when we're down. We also uh, sort of, you know, have this temptation lingering over us for the pleasures of life because sometimes when we're so down and when we can't see beyond and we can't see hope, it's those little distractions, it's the temptations that promise to offer instant gratification that sort of, you know, yell at us and vie for our attention that are easier to succumb to. Also, when it comes to our relationship with believers, If we're down and out, if we're not resilient, if we just, you know, are so down on ourselves and we're so down on others and we're so dark about things and we're always flat and moody, will we either avoid being around other believers or we, you know, we sabotage our relationships with other believers because we end up becoming really hard work and it's hard for people to be around us. And then finally, in relation to our uh, influence in the world, when we're down and out, We don't really feel like witnessing to others because being down and out actually um, has a way of keeping us, you know, inward focused and self-focused. And so we, we even forget that there's a world out there that doesn't know Jesus when we're feeling that way. But other than that, we feel like our credibility is on the line. We think, well, you know, how can I tell them about Jesus when I can't even get my own act together? And so as we unpack these sessions, I want you to know that this has everything to do with your ability to become more and more like Jesus. So let's get started. I want to talk to you and introduce you to a concept called the gap. Now, the gap is defined as the difference between your expectations and your reality. So what does that mean? The gap, the difference between your expectations and your reality. Basically, we all have expectations for how things should unfold and how things should pan out. And that sort of sometimes sits over here. But then life unfolds and a scenario unfolds and we think, oh my goodness, what just happened there? Because what I was expecting is so different to what just eventuated. And we end up with what we call the gap. Now, the bigger the gap, the bigger the meltdown. The smaller the gap, the smaller the meltdown. And so, how do you and I, if the bigger the gap, the bigger the meltdown, how do you and I reduce the gap? And it's a valid question. Do we actually forego all of our expectations? Do we just lower the benchmark so that we're not expecting anything of ourselves and anything of others? And, you know, maybe that way we won't be disappointed. Absolutely not. That's not how we lower the gap. I want to leave you with some thoughts about what actually creates the expectations and how we can look at assessing our expectations. So I want to help you understand that our expectations often come from myths. 
our expectations often come from myths. I want to share a few examples so that we can get as practical as possible of what some myths might be or what they might look like. And so a myth might be vulnerability equals weakness. Yep. So if I have that myth and that sets an expectation for me that I can't be vulnerable, I can't talk about it, I can't let them into my world, I can't let them know that I'm struggling because that communicates weakness, then I basically go about life making sure that I'm really polished and I don't let people in and I don't uh, say anything that sort of, you know, jeopardises the image that I'm trying to portray. So what actually happens is I feel alone I feel like people don't understand me. I feel like, um, you know, I'm just really struggling because the only input that I've got into my life and my situation is coming from my own insights. And so whilst I have an expectation over here that people will support me, that I'm going to get through this, that, you know, whatever it might be, but actually what unfolds is a huge gap because I'm not getting the support. I'm not getting any other viewpoints to help me think differently about anything. And it's all based on this myth that I've got that I can't be vulnerable. Another example is that all conflict ends in a win-win scenario. Well, see, that's a myth. That's not true. But what that does, if I believe that, is it sets a really, really high expectation and a really high benchmark that really sets me up for failure. Because not all conflict ends in a win-win. And that doesn't even imply whether the conflict has been addressed successfully or not. Another example, couples in healthy marriages don't fight. How about another one? If God really cared, he'd actually answer me. And so when he doesn't answer me and my reality looks like silence from heaven, well, I've got this huge gap, right? Huger the gap, huger the meltdown. But even simple things, even simple things, when I pay $4.20 for a coffee, I expect it to be good. And if that's my expectation and I keep getting a bad coffee two or three times in a row, well, whilst that sounds really petty and whilst we sort of think, you know, get over it, get a life, don't carry on about silly things, but these things can unravel us. If you think about it like this, you see this glass of water here, I mean, I don't know how much this weighs, but it doesn't weigh very much. If I put it on the scales, it would be insignificant. And I could actually hold it up like this for the rest of this message and it probably wouldn't faze me because it's only a glass of water and it's only light. But if I was to hold this up and hold it up and hold it up for an hour, two, half a day, a day, you can imagine... I'd be absolutely freaking out. My arms would be sore. I would just be, my concentration span would be all over the place. And so we see it as a glass of water. And we see situations in life as only small situations and not really capable of unraveling us. But we hold them for long enough and they actually do end up unraveling us. And so my tip for you is don't make light of anything that really bothers you for too long because it all catches up with us. But more importantly, pay attention to your expectations. Do some homework, grab some pen and paper, grab a device, take some notes, ask yourself, what are my expectations in certain situations that actually cause me to get frustrated and annoyed and, you know, um, really sort of um, negative about things? 
And what are the myths that might be at play in those situations? And so, in order to actually um, have a look at it from there and take it even further, how do you revise your expectations? I want to give you some more ideas. Okay, so firstly, we've looked at, is there a myth at play? If there is a myth, tackle it, address it. Say, hang on a minute, this has been a little bit of a lie. This is a ridiculously high benchmark that's so far beyond my ability to actually achieve. It's not even realistic for crying out loud. And so start with that. Ask yourself, is there a myth at play? Identify it. When you know it's there, everything shifts for you. Secondly, is my expectation reasonable? Is it reasonable? Ask the question. Whatever the expectation is, is it reasonable, for example, that after I've worked full time for 12 months, that I will be able to pay off all my debts? Is it reasonable to expect that after my partner has been at work all day, that they would come home and engage from the moment they walk through the door? Ask yourself these questions. Is it reasonable or am I setting people up for failure? Or am I being that person that's just so irrational and so illogical with the expectations that I have of others and also the expectations that I have of myself. And then ask yourself, how important is this expectation? On a scale of one to 10, I love, you know, quizzing myself like this on things and asking myself the question, how important is this to me on a scale of one to 10? And I don't know where the number will sit for you, but past a certain number, should actually be the point where you actually just go, you know what, water off a duck's back. I'm going to learn to choose my battles and I'm going to let this go. But ask yourself the question. And sometimes it's not until we stop and we break that rut, we break that, it's almost like our emotions sort of go on this, they get ahead of us and they go on this fast track. And it's only when we stop and we go, how important is this? That we go, oh my goodness, gee, I'm being silly. Gee, I'm being irrational. Or this is really, really important. But whatever answer you get will help you actually work out which way to go. Do I drop it or do I own it? And then finally, if it is important, do I need to have a conversation with someone? Do I have expectations of people that they don't even know about? So do I need to have a conversation, engage with someone and say, hey, this particular situation, it really distresses me. When this happens, it causes me a lot of stress. And so I'm just being open and vulnerable with you and I'm sharing my thoughts on it so that maybe we can come to some sort of an agreement as to how it can work out differently for you and for me. Have a conversation because people are not expected to know what our expectations are if they're just sitting in our head. Or worse still, if they're just sitting in our subconscious mind and we don't even know that they're our very own expectations. And so I want to unpack a, a piece of uh, scripture, a story from the Bible uh, that gives us so much insight into expectations and what they can do and the damage they can cause, I guess, but also um, the, the, the way that they really do impose themselves in the way we behave, um, we think, and so forth. And so the story is the story about Mary and Martha when Jesus went to visit them. And so I want to pick it up from Luke 8, from verse, sorry, Luke 10, from verse 38 to 42. And it says this, 
As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. And hey, let's face it, someone's got to do the cooking, someone's got to do the entertaining, someone's got to prepare the kitchen if people are coming over for dinner, right? So she was in there doing that. And then Martha decides that she's had enough of the fact that she's in the kitchen alone, slaving away over a hot oven, doing what she was doing while Mary was out there sitting at Jesus' feet and listening to what Jesus had to say. And so she sort of has this moment and she must have been, you know, maybe thinking about this in her head and going, well, I want to be out there talking to Jesus too. Why do I have to be in here? Why does she get to be out there? And then all of these thoughts collided and eventuated into this conversation that she has with Jesus. And the scripture tells us Martha came to him, Jesus, and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to come and help me. Fancy this. She's headed out there. She's bossing Jesus around. She's telling him what to do. She's asking a rhetorical question. She's expecting the answer to be, yes, that's not okay. And she jumps in with, can you tell her that she should be in there helping me? And so I don't know about you, but when I sort of put myself in this situation and try and visualise it, I, I can really feel the emotions. I can feel the frustration. I can also probably feel the, you know, if it were me thinking, oh my goodness, I've just had an explosion. I've just made a fool of myself. Oh no, how do I backtrack from here maybe? We don't know what Martha was thinking. But the point being that she headed out there and she had this meltdown, she aired their dirty laundry and then Jesus has this reply that probably surprised her or swept her off her feet. He says, Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one and Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. So essentially Jesus was saying, Martha, it's not about the food. It's about the company. We're here to be together. Your sister's decided to sit at my feet. She's chosen well. Stop stressing out. It's okay. Why don't you actually come and, hey, I'm happy with a piece of bread for crying out loud. I don't need a lavish banquet. Come out and sit with us. And that's what happened. But you know what? There were probably some eggshells to be walked over for the rest of that visit until the awkwardness probably settled down a little bit because everyone's like, whoa, Martha's buttons just got pressed. I don't know whether Mary was feeling awkward at all going, oh dear, I look like the lazy one maybe. I'm not sure. I'm just reading into it. But whatever it is, the situation unfolded where there were some unmet expectations and maybe even unspoken expectations. I don't know about you, but I wonder what may have happened if Mary and Martha had had a conversation about what was going to happen when Jesus arrived. I wonder if they'd even had a conversation and agreed that they would both cook and do some preparation and that uh, when Jesus arrived, they would both sit with him and, you know, had they had those conversations, I wonder whether things would have unfolded any differently in that, um, in that visitation from Jesus. But the crazy thing is this. So we fast forward a little bit and we get to John chapter 12 
And we read in verses one to three that Jesus actually goes back to their house and he visits them. And it says this, it says six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus's honour. Now get this next sentence, Martha served while Lazarus was amongst those reclining at the table with him. Okay, what's just happened here? The exact same thing. Martha is serving again. We can let Lazarus off the hook because he was just raised from the dead. He's reclining at the table. So he's probably exhausted and recovering from being dead for a few days. So that's okay. But Martha She's doing the same thing. And it's like, oh no, before we read on, is this going to eventuate and unfold real bad like it did last time again? But then we read on and it says, then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus's feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with fragrance of the perfume. Now, I don't know about you, but this is set up looking like it's a complete replica of what happened last time. But you know what? It was a smooth gathering. It was a beautiful visit and we don't read about any conflict. We don't read about any frustration. We don't read about any expectations that weren't met. And so could we read between the lines? Could we say, wow, Did the girls have a conversation after what happened? Did they unpack? Did they have chats? Did they say, hey, I would have really expected that you would have helped me? Or at least if you were going to sit out there, maybe you could have told me in advance so that I was, you know, knowing what was going to unfold and I didn't feel like I was the little, you know, peasant servant girl who had to be stuck in the kitchen. And maybe Mary could have said, hey, it didn't even occur to me from my perspective. It was just like, you know, you're the better cook. You're the one who's gifted with a hospitality gift. And, you know, me in the kitchen, that wouldn't work at all. And so I just thought, well, someone's got to sit with our guest of honour. I wonder whether they had a conversation. We don't know. But the point is that when you and I discuss our expectations, when we actually even know what they are, in order to be able to discuss them, things look differently. And incidentally, and consequently, the gap between our expectations and our reality is lessened. No one has dropped the benchmark. No one has decided that they're going to be a doormat and just go with no expectations. But things have been thought about, myths have been identified and conversations have been had. And you know what? On top of all of that, we need to remember that God himself wants you and I to do life with resilience. He wants us to be strong. He wants us to face the unexpected situations with strength and tenacity and boldness and resilience and and grace and kindness. And so it's not just about the tools and the tips. It's about the Holy Spirit who comes up behind us, who rises up within us and who says, hey, I'm loving this. I love that you're focused on this. I love that you want to be more like me. I love that you want to be stronger. I love that you're learning from what didn't work out well last time and you're focused on how it can be better. And so there you have it.
program one, what do we do with the expectations that we have and how can we use them for our benefit so that you and I can become resilient and more like Jesus in every area of our life, in every area of our life. So amen and amen. Would you allow me to pray? Father God, I just want to thank you for every person who's listening to this message today. I want to ask, Lord Jesus, that you would come by your spirit and that you would rise up a spirit of resilience, a spirit of boldness, a spirit of strength, a spirit of hope, a spirit of um, supernatural, divine positivity that sees beyond the here and now, that's always looking for how to be more like you, always looking for how to be more like Jesus, relationally, personally, in every way possible. And so I want to ask for everyone on the other end of this message that you would equip them, that you would raise up within them a hunger to embrace the lessons, to embrace the desire to be strong, bold, resilient, undefeatable, immovable in the name of Jesus. Remind us of the things that we need to be reminded of. We love you, God, and we love that you're interested in our holistic development. In Jesus' name, amen.